Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously interesting books. This week, we tackle a big question with my guest, Tim Ingold. What's the point of anthropology? Anthropology should be an ethical project which is dedicated to the problem of how on earth we are all going to live together in in this world of ours now and into the future. Given the multiple crises that we're facing, To solve those problems, we have to work on them together, and we need all the help we can get. We need to talk to people, and we need to listen to people, and that's what anthropology is about. So it's really about how we can be better people, and that's different from describing the life of some people somewhere sometime. Tim Ingold is Emeritus Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Aberdeen. He did his doctoral research among the reindeer-herding Skolt Sami, of northeastern Finland, which later led him to big questions about human-animal relations at a time when such questions were much less in vogue than they are today. Other leading themes in his work include the connection between language and technology and the centrality of skilled practice. His publication list is long, but our conversation was prompted by the recent publication of Anthropology, Why It Matters, in Polity Books' series of the same name. Here, Tim proposes a bold project for anthropology, less as a mode of study than a mode of being in the world, less an ethnographic categorization of the world, more an engaged conversation in and with it. Memorably, he writes, we anthropologists refuse to accept that human life can be sliced into layers of body, mind and society, or that its study can be divided between biologists, psychologists and sociologists. Anthropology's subject is humanity, unsliced. Originally destined for a science degree, Tim, as a Cambridge undergraduate in the late 60s, switched to archaeology and anthropology. I asked him why. Two things. One was that it seemed to be a discipline on the make, a relatively, a relatively new discipline, as disciplines go, which still hadn't quite found its feet intellectually and so I I don't know I was a bit um, no I did but I I, I thought um, I'd like to be the Galileo of anthropology basically that right. I would I, I could be the person who could get this get this discipline up and running 
and, and give it a firm foundation without, of course, having to suffer like Galileo did. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but, but then the other thing was about anthropology was that I felt that it was really somehow grounded in, in real human experience. Um, so it was a combination of those two things, of a discipline that, where there was still room to, to really make, make something of it, and a discipline that was really grounded in the, in the realities of human experience. Those were what persuaded me to do anthropology. If you'd said to your tutors back then, how do you conceive the purpose of anthropology? Is the answer they would have given very different from the one that you would give Yes, today? absolutely. I mean, that, for example, I... I Remember that one of the first books I, I read, right, I must have found it in the library somewhere, and it was a, a little book by two anthropologists, Marshall Salins, who went on to become very famous, and Elman Service, not so famous, called, called Evolution and Culture. And it was a crazy book about how um, one could understand cultural evolution in relation to um, the harnessing and use of energy in the world. It didn't make any sense. But I got really excited by this book because I, because I felt, uh, that here was a sort of vision about thinking about the whole of the whole of humanity and 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 how it had developed and what had happened to it. And I remember going along to to my tutor, who happened to be an archaeologist and a sort of fairly distinguished Indianist, and he told me never to never ever to read anything like that again. <laughs> so that 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 was then sort of resolved me that, that that was exactly where I was going to concentrate my reading, and I became thoroughly interested in in evolutionary theory. There's an irony, isn't there, that you were clearly already beginning to have an interest in big, holistic questions and, and approaches, and yet the, the discipline seemed to become, be becoming more and more fractured and fragmented as, you know, as, those, as those early decades of your career went on. Uh, that's, it. that's exactly correct. Anthropology then was, was very fragmented and, and about to become a lot more so. Um, and I yes, went into anthropology in the hopes of, of bringing things together. Probably came from my upbringing, an earlier edu- upbringing in a scientific household, and my, my previous education. I don't know, but it didn't come from my what I was taught <laughs> at the university. Because I mean, one conclusion one could reach is that that maybe as areas of anthropology seem to fragment, and attach themselves or, or, or show commonality with other disciplines. And perhaps maybe anthropology wasn't a discipline in its own right, but, but maybe this sort of splitting was just a natural evolution of the, you know, the field of inquiry as it, as mm. it, um, as it broadened out. But you, you, do, you don't hold with that view. No, I don't. I mean, it, it, um, the, the historical fact was that it was splitting at that time and, and the social and cultural anthropology had gone its way. Social, social anthropology in Britain had split from cultural anthropology in the United States and both of them had split from archaeology and physical anthropology and those splits then were going to become, from the 1980s onwards, even more pronounced. But I was interested in anthropology, I think, because of the the freedom, perhaps because it was all splitting up, it also had lots of holes in it. And it gave you the freedom to do things completely differently if you wanted to. (laughs) I I really appreciated then, and and I certainly still appreciate now, that particular freedom, intellectual freedom that anthropology gives. When I speak to people in other disciplines and they they say, oh, I couldn't possibly do that, or if I 
well, you know, I wouldn't be allowed to say such and such. And I said, well, in anthropology, you can really do what you want. Others might not agree with you, but they won't say you can't do it. And, and that's one of the things that's kept me into anthropology. I wanted to go back to 1988, Tim, because you... It sounds like you had, I don't know if it was an epiphany or if it was a gradual realisation, but you write in the book, in 1988, you realised that everything I had argued until then seemed irredeemably wrong. So I wondered, can you, can you sketch out, was this an intellectual crisis? Tell, tell me more about um, how you came to that realisation. It, it was an intellectual crisis in a way. It came largely from, from teaching. I mean, when you're, when you're teaching, I was teaching at Manchester at the time and I, I had a course to third-year undergraduates that had first been called environment and technology when I started it, and then it became environment and economy. And it was all about how to try and integrate an ecological perspective on human life with, a, with one that looks at, at human economies, patterns of subsistence, exchange, production, and so on. And I was trying to develop an idea that we have to think of the interrelation between two systems. So there'd be ecological systems which uh, relate human beings as organisms with the rest of the living world, and then economic systems which would engage humans with one another through relations of exchange, production, and, and, and trade, and so on. And, and I was trying to work on that, and, and the more I worked on it, the more I realized that it just didn't... It, was just, it just seemed, seemed more and more difficult to put this over coherently to students. And so I began to realize that I can't, couldn't do it coherently because it doesn't actually work. It forces a division in, in, in human experience that, that isn't really there. And so it, it, it did actually, that, that period, um, it gets a bit personal, but there, there was a period from about 1987 to 1992 when I went through a rather intense, period of depression mm. you know with all the usual symptoms of anxiety depression that people get and and it was partly sort of burnout but the curious thing is when I look back on it that that period was also a period of intellectual crisis when I was kind of having to rethink everything <laughs> and so it was a very very intense period mm. And you you came out of it though with a with a different conception, really yeah. of of the human being, didn't you? Which didn't enforce this division between between their cultural world and their environmental world. That was it. And and um, so I, I, I in nineteen eighty six I'd written this book called The Appropriation of Nature, which was all about looking at it in this dualistic way. And I'd also written a book called Evolution and Social Life, which had been trying to trying to find a way of putting evolutionary biology and social anthropology together. And then I, I figured that these hadn't worked or that they were rested on false premises, so I'd have to, in a, in a, in a sense, begin, begin all over again. And that the only way to do that was by recognizing... Because up to then, I'd, I'd assumed, for example, when you read evolutionary biology, that that biologists must know what they're talking about and therefore we've got to respect what they say <laughs> and, and take their arguments on board. And then I realized that, no, actually, those arguments were based on, on, on false premises and what we needed was not just a new, different anthropology, but a different biology as well. How much of your thinking was informed by your actual experience 
in the polar regions because you'd been there doing field work with the mm. Sami people and reindeer herders. And when your sort of intellectual epiphany happened, how much of that was enabled by your your actual lived experience in in uh, with the Sami well, people? Um, so it was it was kind of yes and no. In one sense one thing had led to another. So working with the Sami, I'd been working with people who were working very closely with animals, and particularly reindeer, of course, but other animals as well. And, and, and so when I came out of that, I was naturally interested in, in the study of human-animal relations. It's very fashionable now, but in those days, hardly anybody was looking at it. So, so I was getting into that, almost pioneering that area of how to, st- how to approach the study of human-animal relations. And that led to the question of, well, how do humans differ from animals anyway? So it brought me into questions of, of, of language and tool making, which are the things that were always reduced to, to uh, account for the differences. And then from there, I got on to, well, in that case, you know, how did human beings evolve um, into humans from having been pre-humans and, or animals? <laughs> and that brought me into all these central questions of evolution. So, so, so somehow from reindeer herding to evolutionary theory, there was, a, there was a series of steps that led from one thing to another, and they all happened through the experience of teaching. So that was one thing. But there were other things that I, I absorbed almost unconsciously. I mean, when, when I did fieldwork with the Sami, it was a very standard kind of project, and I... I did the sorts of things that you were supposed to do, like study kinship relations and household economies and and the micropolitics of reindeer herding and things like that. So I did all the things you were supposed to do. But at the same time, one's absorbing a way of thinking and feeling without really realizing it. And I don't think I realized how much and what I had absorbed until many, many years later. So for, if you go, like you just mentioning the book on lines, that was written, you know, that was in, in 2007, so that's, what, 30 years after I was, almost 30 years after I was in the field, that you, I began to think, well, why, why on earth am I interested in this stuff? And then I, I realized that it did go back to that, to that experience. Mm. But it, it, it takes a long time for you to realize what you have, absorbed through through that kind of fieldwork. And can I ask, how has your view of fieldwork changed over the course of your career? Because what you what you just described is, I guess, what many people think of as the the form and, and function of fieldwork. The anthropologist goes into the field with a notebook and yeah. and makes connections and observes and then comes back and, and writes it up. And from from the book Anthropology Why It Matters, you clearly see it see that as two as too limited and limiting and um, really n- not what it's centrally about or should be about. No. I mean, that, that it's really important to do fieldwork. And, and you can always tell, even if, even, if it's a, if, even if you're reading a book of the most abstract theory, uh, you can always tell whether the author has done fieldwork or not. Uh, there's something that, that comes through. For example, I often, with the work of some philosophers, drives me to exasperation because you can see this person's never ever actually experienced life at first hand, so to speak. And, and so you can, you can tell the difference. And what I was trying to say in the book, in a way, is, is that 
is that participant observation, which is what we do in the field, is absolutely crucial. It's, it's, it's transformative. It transforms one's way of thinking and one's way of feeling in ways that you then bring, take into your life, into whatever you're doing later on. But I wanted to make it clear that that's different from the business of simply writing up, uh, analyzing and writing up the life of another people, as one might do in an ethnographic monograph. And that anthropology really has to go beyond that. So it's not just about going to work with some people and then producing an analytic account of what's going on in their lives. Much more important to anthropology is allowing the learning that happens through that experience of fieldwork to transform your own approach to life in general and, and thinking about things and in whatever problems you're trying to tackle. And that's really where the anthropology comes in, I think. I mean, you write about exactly that, going beyond the descriptive and the analytical into realms which may be speculative mm. and experimental. And you also write about anthropology as being a conversation. And I wondered, could you say a little bit more about, about those attributes? And can you perhaps give an example of, of anthropology entering into a domain in a more speculative and experimental way rather than ethnographic and analytical? A lot of people are doing this kind of work at the moment in which they'd say that really the, the key role of, of the anthropologist is not actually to produce research outputs, but to to enter in the com into the conversation and learn from it. I'm just trying to think of a... Oh, well, well, one example that I've used is actually a, a fictional example, but it might help. You know, in my other life, I play the cello. Just as an amateur, but it still takes up quite a lot of my, my interest. And, and I imagine sometimes, it wouldn't it have been great to be able to go and study with Rostropovich? Now, there would be two ways in which you might think about this. Now, firstly, I might say, well, as a cellist, I'll go, I'll try and, try and get access to Rostropovich. I'll sit at his feet for a couple of years. I'll, I'll listen to his playing, watch what he does, absorb his words of wisdom. And I'll come back and hope that then I will understand the instrument better, understand the music better, understand myself better. And that all that understanding will be realized in my performances, which will be better and transformed as a result. That'd be one scenario. The other scenario is that I might use my cello as a kind of ticket to gain access to Rostropovich in his circle. I would interview people, I'd go and meet some other cellists, and I'd um, write a sociological analysis on the position of, uh, of cello players in contemporary Russian society, which I called call it bears on strings. So then... Um, <laughs> So that, that would be the other thing, in which you're setting out not to, to learn to become, to grow as a cellist, but actually to learn about the position of these practitioners as, as cello players. So that the latter would be a sort of ethnographic approach, and perfectly scholarly, but it wouldn't actually tell me anything about how to play, the, or, or I wouldn't learn anything more about how to be a better cellist. And I, th I think that, that anthropology fundamentally is, as I started in that book, is that how should we live? I say the anthropology 
should be an ethical project which is dedicated to the problem of how on earth we are all going to live together in, in, in this world of ours now and into the future, given the multiple crises that we're facing. And to solve those problems, we have to work on them together and we need all the help we can get. We need to talk to people and we need to listen to people and that's what anthropology is about. So it's really about how we can be better people. And that's different from describing the life of some people somewhere sometime, which is not to say that that's a bad thing to do, but it's a different thing, has different objectives. So to pursue your analogy, what is the anthropologist's equivalent of you coming back from studying with Rostropovich and giving a, a performance of the Bach cello suites, which is informed by the experience that you've had with Rostropovich? What, what is the outcome for the anthropologist? I worried a long time about this, and then I realised that the equivalent is actually teaching. So I don't give, because I, I'm just an amateur, I'm not giving performances, but, but as, a, as an anthropologist, I, I have been, for example, giving lectures. I've been teaching students. And the point of that teaching is to, again, be transformative, both for me and for the students. And that's why I think, I feel very strongly, that, that teaching has to be an integral part of what anthropology is, it's the other side of participant observation. We do field work, we teach. And without one, you can't have the other. And that's also the reason why I've been trying to argue with my colleagues that we should think of anthropology fundamentally as a practice of education rather than ethnography. And then why stop that education at the university gates? I mean, you make the point in the, in the book that anthropologists are conspicuous by their absence in, in public debate compared to sociologists or political scientists or philosophers or psychologists. Mm. So what you've described is, a, is, a, is an ambitious and important project for anthropology to convey the wisdom learned from the study. So why are anthropologists not more visible and more audible in public debate? Well... There are several reasons for that. One of them is that it's, it's very hard for anthropology, anthropologists to register in public debate because they're not made very good at, at, at popularization. And I, and I don't think popular anthropology is what we should be trying to do even. But when you think about the disciplines that are very successful, uh, in getting themselves across in the media, for example, is because they, they do have very good popularizers. And the, and the trick with popularization, I think it's the same trick that, that all advertisers use. If, you want to, if you're an advertising salesman and you, you want to get, get people to buy your product, you have a very good nose for what it is that people really want. And then you give it to them, served up with a spin, so as it makes it look as though what you're giving them is brand, is novel, exciting, cutting edge, and so on. And when you look at the formula for writing popular science, that's exactly what, what these, most of these authors do. They don't actually challenge people's conceptions about anything. They make people feel good. So they tell them what, what, what they already knew, and, they, and so the, the reader thinks, oh, I'm, I'm really cleverer than I thought I was, and then give it, give it an extra spin. And for anthropologists, they can't do that because they're always trying to, rather than giving people answers to questions that they've always wanted answers to, they're trying to say to people, no, you're actually asking, asking the wrong questions. You should be asking something different. And, and people 
well, people do tend to find that unsettling. So it's very difficult to to get things across for that reason. But there's another reason, which is that where, where I think anthropologists have shot themselves in the foot, and that's by trying to pretend in order to get public attention that we are the people who do culture. You know, if you want a professional view on culture, ask an anthropologist. And that's absolutely suicidal, partly because people think of culture as icing on the cake anyway, partly because if people are confirmed in their prejudice that what anthropologists are there for is to act as a sort of sounding board for other cultures, then there's no way in which they can ever get up and have a point of view of their own. They, they have nothing to contribute as anthropologists. All they can contribute is the view from the other side. Yes, they're conduits. They're yes. perceived as conduits and nothing more. Yes, that's, I think, a big problem. And that, that, that again, is another reason why I've been wanting to try and pull anthropology away from the ethnographic project and say, no, you know, as anthropologists, we've, we've done all this studying, we've, we've had all these conversations with people all around the world, so we really have... And on the basis of all that, you know, we have something to say for ourselves. And what about taking the insight, the wisdom gained, and presenting it in different genres? So, so neither the public lecture nor the ethnography, but perhaps in genres of art and painting or performance or, or something that, you know, a multimedia experience. Is that, you know, if you're saying that the, the talking head is not really going to work for the anthropologist, what do you feel about other manifestations of the insights gained by anthropology, you know, in different genres? Mm, I feel very positive about that. I think that there are all sorts of opportunities that we could take to do that kind of thing, to infuse anthropology into the into projects of art, architecture, music, dance, theatre. And to be fair, a lot of younger generation of anthropologists are beginning and to and very enthusiastically do just that. And I, and I think so, so I'm not entirely pessimistic. I think that there is a, there is a younger generation now who's, who's really taking those sorts of challenges on board and, and producing some wonderfully interesting and exciting work. The difficulty they face is that when they do that, the old-fashioned professional ethnographic side of anthropology turns out their noses and says, this isn't, you know, this isn't proper anthropological scholarship. There's a, a sort of tension I, it was a big, big conference in London last June on anthropology, art, and representation. There was about over a thousand people there, and and I could have sensed that split. There was a half of them were sort of rather, rather traditional sort of museum anthropologists doing museum ethnography, anthropology of art, this kind of thing, and the other half were were people doing all kinds of outrageous things <laughs> and tend to be from the younger generation. And, 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 and there really was a, yeah, I, I, I noticed it's a sort of a generational thing maybe. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's not that I don't have hope for the future of the discipline, but it's got some real, real challenges uh, to deal with ahead, not least of which is where to find a home um, in a university environment that's increasingly hostile to this kind of thing. 
You talked at the beginning about anthropology appealing to you as a new discipline, but at the same time, as you say in the book, it's a discipline which literally has cupboards full of skeletons. I'd, I, in the last few years, I visited the uh, the ethnographic museums in Berlin and in in Brussels, and it, it's impossible to go into a place like that without having a very strong awareness of the particular interweaving with the projects behind those museums mm. and colonial projects and all sorts of highly highly disreputable ideas <laughs> and do you think do you think anthropology is still sort of dogged by that that dark shadow yeah i think it is i think it is not not amongst anthropologists themselves you know we can get on with what we're doing but in terms of its public persona i do think it's still dogged by that and it's a really really hard thing to shake off. I mean, most most people out there really haven't haven't the faintest idea what anthropology is or what it's about. But they think it's something to do with skeletons and bones, or maybe forensics, or, <laughs> or something like that. And, and and the link with the dark past and of of um, of imperialism is it's still alive and well in the popular imagination. It's, it's got nothing to do with what most anthropologists are doing now. But it's very hard to shake it off. But maybe there's a, an evolution in the museum world too, because I know the Brussels oh, yeah. Museum has. So maybe that will help. Maybe yeah. that you know oh, by represent, by, by bringing that into the public debate. Museums are doing wonderful things now, and and anthropologists are working with them. And so again, there's hope for the future. But we do have an awful lot of baggage from the past that <laughs> it would be helpful around. if it wasn't there. <laughs> it's difficult. So what would you say in conclusion, Tim? To to a bright 17-year-old, as you once were, curious and inquiring and mm-hmm. perhaps concerned about the world, who might be thinking about doing a, some sort of course in anthropology. What would you say to, to encourage them to, to take that seriously? Well, I'd say what I say in the book, which is, that, which is that, that of all the different disciplines you can study, anthropology is probably the only one that is prepared to take, it's to take the experience of people living anywhere in different parts of the world uh, with different backgrounds, different ways of life, to take that experience seriously and learn from it. Um, Other disciplines might go to study these people, treat them as objects of inquiry, but anthropology is the only one that is bringing all those people into the conversation. And, And so one way of putting it, I might put to this, aspiring 17-year-old, I'd say that with anthropology, the university in which we study is the world itself. Uh, It's not that we study in a university and then go out into the world armed with the knowledge we've acquired. In anthropology, we actually treat the world as a great big university. We don't make studies of people, we study with them and learn from them. That's what I'd say. (laughs) <laughs> if they if they if they buy that, then they'll be good anthropologists. I was talking to Tim Ingold about his book Anthropology: Why It Matters. It's published in paperback by Polity Press in their Why It Matters series, and you can find out more about it on the Polity website. Do also have a listen to my recent interview with another contributor to that series, Lynn Hunt, on why history matters. You'll find that and around fifty other interviews at thehedgehogandthefox.com Or you can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. 
I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.